Hi, and welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants with Raphael Bender. Today, I want to address the question of can we even feel muscles activating? Now, I think this is a very important question to talk about in Pilates because for many, many of us, for many Pilates instructors, cueing muscle activation, detecting muscle activation, encouraging people to you know um, activate their muscles correctly is a a core focus of what we do. And uh, was certainly a core focus of what I was uh, trained to do when I first uh, certified in Pilates. And I see it on, on, on Instagram and Facebook every day, uh, you know, queuing, people queuing muscles or talking about muscle activation. Uh, and so I, th- I, I think it's a very important question to examine, like, can we even perceive muscles activating? So stick around and I'll talk you through what I've been able to discover in the literature. All right, so we're going to talk about some of the physiology of uh, the mechanisms, um, the neural mechanisms of how we detect activity in muscles. We're going to talk about uh, why that's not a good measure. Uh, that's, that's not an accurate kind of, it doesn't give us an accurate perception of what's going on in the muscle in terms of activation levels. Uh, and that what we're feeling is uh, probably not uh, activation, but it's other things. And I'll talk about what those other things are. Uh, finally, we're going to talk about uh, why it doesn't matter that we can't feel it. All right, so stick around and I'll talk you through the science. Let's begin with the physiology. So there are no, no there's no known mechanism by which humans can perceive muscle activation. Like there is no, no one has discovered a nerve ending or any kind of mechanism that allows our central nervous system, our brain and spinal cord, to receive information about the activation level of a muscle. Instead, what we can sense is the tension within a muscle. Now, often tension and activation go together, but not always. For example, when you stretch a muscle passively, you there is tension on the muscle, but there's no activation. So tension and activation are not the same thing, although they often go together. We don't have any known mechanism for sending information to our central nervous system about the level of activation in a muscle, but we can sense tension. And we sense tension in our muscles through something called the Golgi tendon organ. Uh, You may have heard of those or may not, uh, but you're hearing about them now (laughs) in either event. So the Golgi tendon organ is a specialized type of muscle. I guess it's it's a part of a muscle fiber uh, that is really each if you picture a muscle right so picture maybe your your thigh muscle your rectus femoris you know the the quadricep muscle that goes right down the very front of your thigh from your hip bone to your kneecap the rectus femoris is comprised of you know i'm going to guess and say let's say like 10,000 muscle fibers i don't know if that number's right or not but let's it's about you know it's it's more let's say it's more than 5,000 and less than 100,000 probably <laughs> Let's say 10,000. And so each muscle fiber is the full length of the muscle. So each muscle fiber in the rectus femoris runs all the way from your anterior inferior iliac spine, which is where it starts on your hip hip joint, above your hip joint, and runs all the way to the patella, the kneecap. Well, you know, there's a little bit of tendon on each end, but basically runs the full length. And you have, let's say again, roughly 10,000, might be 20,000, but you know, let's just call it ten thousand for the sake of keeping it simple. Of those muscle fibers, so and your rectus femoris, you know, again, depending on your uh, body size, etc., how well trained you are, your rectus femoris might be the thickness of your thumb. It might be the thickness of you know two of your fingers side by side. And you think there are ten thousand muscle fibers in that thickness, right? So imagine it's the thickness of your thumb, and you've got. 10,000 muscle fibers in there. So those muscle fibers are very thin. (laughs) They're very narrow. They're way more narrow than the narrowest human hair that you could see with your naked eye. They're probably about 21,000th of a millimeter wide. 21,000ths 
of a millimeter. So a millimeter is about, if you had a dime, a US uh, dime, or in Australia, a five cent piece. Um, I don't know what it would be in, <laughs> in other currencies. But one millimeter, one tenth of a centimeter, uh, the thickness of a dime, the thickness of a five cent piece in Australia. You could, that's, tw- that's one millimeter. So a muscle cell is about 20 microns or 21 thousandths of a millimeter. So two, 21 thousandths is two one hundredths is one fiftieths, one fiftieth. So you could stack 50 muscle cells on top of each other, side by side by side by side, and it would be the thickness of a dime. Okay, those muscle cells are very thin. They're too thin to see with the naked eye. The naked eye, the smallest thing you can see with your naked eye, if you've got 20-20 vision, is about 60 or 70 microns. So 60 or 70 one-thousandths of a millimetre, whereas a human muscle cell is roughly 20 microns. So it's it's significantly thinner than the thinnest thing you can see with your naked eye. Now, the muscle cells run the full length of your of your muscle, so a muscle cell and a muscle fiber are the same thing. A cell is a fiber. And those muscle cells are composed end of, of things called sarcomeres, which are kind of just little bricks, little building blocks of muscle fibers. And they are, they are uh, joined end to end to end to end to end to make up this muscle fiber. And I've got no idea how many sarcomeres would be in in that muscle fiber, but let's say it's like a thousand, right? I'm just totally making up that number, but let's say it's a thousand sarcomeres, you know, end to end to end, making up that muscle fiber. Now, one, each, each muscle fiber is, has a skeleton, you know, not made out of bones. It's got a skeleton made out of something called collagen. You know, it's got a structure made out of something called collagen. Collagen is a protein. It's a long, thin fiber, like like a, a bit of string, a bit of yarn, a bit of very strong string, okay? And the collagen protein is non-living. It's like your hair is a, is a protein. Your hair's not collagen, but it is a protein. And, you, you know, so if you cut your hair, it doesn't hurt. There are no nerve fibers in there. It's non-living tissue. Uh, and collagen is non-living tissue, and it makes up the structure, it makes up the skeleton of this muscle fiber. So the, the outside of the fiber is wrapped, essentially, in a sheath of collagen. You know, there are a few other things in there, but let's just basically say it's collagen. Then uh, right through each muscle fiber, there are also many other strands of collagen that provide structure and other proteins, but mainly collagen, that provide structure to that muscle fiber and give it shape. And they form the anchor points for those contractile proteins, the actin and myosin, which actually do the, the work of contracting the muscle. All right, so the, the, this muscle basically is kind of a bag of a bag made of collagen with muscle stuff inside it, you know, contractile proteins inside it. And so one little part of that muscle, let's say say it's like one little section of that muscle fiber right towards the end where the muscle fiber blends into the patella tendon near the knee, right? Remember, we're talking about the rectus femoris, one of the quadriceps muscles. Okay, right towards the, remember, imagine this like muscle fiber that runs all the way from your hip to your kneecap. It is about one third of the thickness of the thinnest, finest human hair you could see with 20-20 vision. And that is one muscle fiber or one muscle cell. Now, right towards the end of that muscle fiber where it joins into the, where it blends into the patella tendon. Now, the patella tendon is just made of collagen. And so the 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 bag, the, the wrapping, the sheath around this muscle fiber that is made of collagen blends into the patella tendon, which is also made of collagen. So there's no kind of like point at which it's glued on as such. It's just this sheath of collagen containing muscle contractile things, you know, actin and myosin, okay? And then at some point, the actin and myosin stop, right? And it's just collagen. And we call that part the tendon. So the tendon really is kind of a continuation of the muscle fiber itself, just minus the actual contractile parts. So right up towards the musculotendinous junction, you know, the part right towards the end of the muscle part 
and right about where the muscle part sort of blends into just the tendon, you know, where the contractile part proteins, you know, finish up. There's this little section of muscle fiber that doesn't have any contractile proteins in it. So it's got the sheath, but it's just empty. Well, it's not empty, in fact, because inside it, instead of contractile proteins, there are just loosely folded strands of collagen, right? So picture this kind of tubular structure, the muscle fiber, a sheathed in collagen, and inside it, at full length, there are these contractile proteins that, that when they activate, they shorten, they pull together, right? They make the muscle shorter. Except this one little section right towards the end, down near to where the kneecap is, where the tendon is, it's just an empty tube full of folded up collagen. Now, collagen, again, has long, thin uh, strands. They're, it's like a strong string or yarn. And so these these folded collagen strands go, they still go end to end of that you know empty section of the muscle fiber, Okay, but they're loose. They're not taut. They're not straight. They're folded on each on themselves, right? They're not all twisted and like a, a. They're not all like twisted or knotted. They're just folded, and so they're loose. And as you pull the muscle longer, they will straighten out, right? So they're they're loosely folded. Now wrapped around each of these collagen strands, inside that hollow tube there where there's no contractile proteins in that part of the muscle, wrapped around each of those collagen strands is a nerve fiber. An axon is the the high-class name for it. It's the tail of a nerve cell. And those axons are wrapped around those collagen fibers. Now, when the muscle experiences tension, okay, because there are contractile proteins Remember this this hollow part that we're describing, this this hollow tube at towards the end of the muscle cell, near where it joins onto the musculotendinous junction, there is normally there are contractile proteins in this tube, but in this particular part of it, there are no contractile proteins. There are just folded up collagen strands wrapped with nerve fibers. And so when the muscle contracts, the contractile proteins at either end of this tube, you know, the, the contractile proteins in the adjoining compartments, they pull, right? They, they contract, they pull and they create a tension. Tension is just a pulling force, right? So they pull on this compartment that we just described that has these collagen fibers in it that are loosely folded and have these nerve fibers wrapped around them. And so when this compartment is pulled, it stretches, it straightens out, right? Those, those folded collagen fibers, they get pulled straight, and the nerve axons, the nerve fibers with them also get pulled straight. And that change in the shape of those nerve fibers triggers a nerve impulse, triggers a nerve impulse. So those nerves fire an electrochemical, uh, electrochemical signal, which goes up, uh, the, you know, up the axon, you know, the nerve fiber into the spinal cord and into the brain, and that's called an afferent signal. That uh, you know is a, that's a, that's sensory information that gets sent to the brain about the status of the body tissues, and what that information says is there is tension on this muscle fiber, and that little hollow tube with the folded up collagen wrapped in nerve fibers that is within that muscle cell near the musculotendinous junction, near where the, the, the contractile proteins end and the, the collagen just you know, turns into the tendon, that, that little hollow tube is called the Golgi tendon organ because some fellow called Golgi, presumably, uh, discovered it. Uh, and its, its function is to sense tension and to send information about the tension within the muscle to the spinal cord and brain. And that is the only known mechanism by which we can detect uh, within our central nervous system muscle activation. So we don't have no direct way of, uh, we have no direct nerves that uh, provide information to the central nervous system about the activation level of a muscle. But instead we have these Golgi tendon organs which provide information about the amount of tension that's on the muscle. Now, often, the more activation the muscle 
the more the more the muscle activates, the more tension there'll be. So often tension and activation kind of go together, but not always, because like I said before, if you passively stretch the muscle without recruiting it, it will there'll be tension on it, but there'll be no activation. And the tension on that muscle, and tension's just a pulling force, right? So when we pull the muscle, we stretch it that Golgi tendon organ will stretch and those collagen fibrils within the Golgi tendon organ will straighten out and the nerve axons that are wrapped around them will change shape, will straighten out with them and they will trigger a nerve impulse up to the spinal cord and brain which will tell your central nervous system, your brain and spinal cord, that that muscle is experiencing tension, right? And it will be the same information that you'll get if instead of stretching you were activating that muscle right? And producing an equivalent amount of tension on the muscle, right? So there's no, we have no means of discriminating between activating a muscle to create tension versus just passively pulling on it to create tension in terms of the sensory information that's processed within the spinal cord and brain. All right. So the Golgi tendon organ is the organ within, you know, it's just a little hollow tube within a muscle cell filled with folded collagen strands, wrapped with nerve, nerve fibers, that when, ten, when that muscle cell experiences tension, when the two ends are pulled, okay, either by the contraction of the muscle itself or by some external force, like being stretched, when that happens, that triggers a nerve impulse that goes up to the spinal cord and up to the brain ultimately, and that helps our brain become aware or enables our brain to become aware that there is tension on that muscle fiber. Now, Here's the thing, Golgi tendon organs, it turns out, are able to sense tension, so they can just, you know, they fire, they fire, you know, they don't fire when there's no tension, okay? When you go from no tension to a little bit of tension, they fire, you know, a little bit, okay? They fire, uh, you know, infrequently, they fire like regularly, but not very often, you know? And then when you increase the tension to moderate tension, they fire more often, right? So your brain can tell, oh, that Golgi tendon organ's firing, you know, X number of times per second. Therefore, there must be X amount of tension on that muscle, right? So the more frequently it fires, you know, when I say fires, it just means generates a nerve impulse, like sends a beep, a little nerve impulse, an electrochemical signal up the nerve, Okay to the spinal cord and brain, okay? And when we when we send that more frequently, the spinal cord and brain can interpret that as being there being more tension on the muscle, right? So we, that's the mechanism by which we sense the amount of tension that is uh, present in the muscle. However, it's not a direct relationship. There's not a direct relationship between how frequently the tendon organ fires and how much tension is on the muscle because what happens is, when you maintain a constant tension on that muscle, the Golgi tendon organ becomes desensitized. It fires less frequently over time. So when you first go from no tension to some tension, it fires more frequently. So your brain goes, oh, there's some tension on that muscle. But then if you maintain that constant tension, right? So if you go into a stretch and you hold it, right? Or if you go into a plank and you hold it, right? Constant tension on the muscle, the Golgi tendon organ becomes desensitized after a few seconds and starts to fire less frequently. So the longer you stay at a certain level of tension, the less frequently that organ fires. And so your brain gets less and less information about what's going on in that muscle as you hold a position. So it turns out that the Golgi tendon organ is better at sensing, it's actually more, more sensitized to changes in tension than it is to the absolute level of tension. So it, it's, it, is, it is stimulated and you know, triggered to create a nerve impulse both by the absolute level of tension, so more tension, more impulses, and also changes in tension, so more change in tension, more impulses. And so it's some kind of combination of those things, but it seems to be the case that the change in tension is more impactful than the total amount of tension. So we're better at detecting changes in muscle tension than we are at detecting the absolute level of muscle tension. All right, so where does that leave us? Well, just to sum up what we've we've just been through. 
we we have no known mechanism. That no one's discovered any kind of nerve ending or kind of signaling mechanism that is able to directly provide sensory information to the spinal cord and brain about muscle activation. So we've got no, there's no dial on the dashboard that tells us if a muscle is on or not. We have, there's no feedback available to the brain that tells us that. But we have this indirect measurement where we're able to sense tension in a muscle cell. And often tension corresponds with activation. So that's a you know, reasonably good way for us to get information about when that muscle is activated. However, when you passively stretch a muscle, you produce tension without activation. So tension and activation don't always go together. And further, we can't sense the absolute level of tension so well as we can sense changes in the level of tension. So we become desensitized. Now, those Golgi tendon organs become desensitized, which just means when you increase the tension a bit, they get all excited and fire more frequently. And then as you maintain that same level of increased tension, they actually get less excited <laughs> and they fire less frequently. So you become desensitized. It's less, you're less sensitive okay, to that new level of tension, which you maintain now. So, uh, all right. So can we feel it? All right. Well, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, but we can, we can sense changes in tension uh, and to a certain extent, we can sense absolute level of tension, uh, but we can't directly sense activation. But sometimes, you know, tension and activation do go together. However, uh, there is in uh, there are a couple of lines of indirect evidence now. So I want to move away from the physiology. Okay, so we talked about the physiology. I want to move more to like uh, sort of in vivo, you know, human live experiments now and talk about a couple of indirect lines of evidence and just basically logic <laughs> that uh, show that we we really can't uh, perceive muscle activation, even when we think we can. And then I'm going to talk through like why, what I think we are feeling when we perceive muscle activation. Uh, and, uh, you know, why it doesn't matter anyway. All right. So there are two, two, two lines of reasoning. First one is just a logical thing, right? Now, if we could perceive activation in a muscle, we would perceive activation more easily when the muscle activated more, right? So it'd be easier to perceive the muscle working at a hundred percent than to perceive it working at 5%, right? And that just seems pretty self-evident. It's easier to detect something like a much more powerful contraction than a much more gentle contraction, right? So if we have any ability to detect and perceive muscle activation, it should be easier to perceive muscle activation in exercises where the muscles are activated more. And this is just not the case. If you've ever lifted anything really heavy, now when I say really heavy and lifted, I just mean, let me rephrase that a bit, bit more precisely. If you've ever worked your muscles against a load that was very close to your maximum, right? So it could be an external force like a weight, could be, you know, pushing a car, a broken down car, okay? It could be doing a full push-up, if doing a full push-up is very close to your maximum, okay, and, you know, doing a pistol squat, you know, doing um, twist on the reformer, okay, there, there, uh, there are exercises, if, there's, if you've ever done any physical effort where you couldn't do more than about five reps, right, so where you, maybe you couldn't even do one rep, or maybe you could do a couple of reps, but then you literally couldn't do another one, right? So if if you can't do five full push-ups, right, push-ups, think about push-ups. If you can do five full push-ups, what about one-handed push-ups, right? So let, let's just think about a one-handed push-up. I'm assuming most of us can't do more than five one-handed push-ups in a full plank, right? So imagine you lie flat on the floor, right, with one hand behind your back, and one hand, palm down, face on the floor, flat on the floor, ready to do a push-up, right? Now, imagine you, or imagine you start in a one-handed plank, right? Then you lower down, 
till your chest touches the ground and then you push as hard as you can to go up into a one-handed push-up. If you're like the vast majority of people, you won't be able to do it. Right? And if you can do it, that's awesome. But you know, then do a second and a third one. Okay, So imagine you get to number four or five and you're like, okay, I just can't do another one. What's almost certainly going to be the case is you will be unable to push up, but you won't feel much of anything in particular in your muscles. You'll just feel unable to push up. There'll be no particular physical sensation from your muscles, from your triceps, from your pectoralis, from your deltoids. Certainly not from your serratus anterior. In that in that situation where you are pushing up and you are doing, uh, you're working against a load where you can't do more than five, so above your kind of like 85% of your maximum load, right? And if you can't even do one, that's above 100%. That's above your maximum, right? So your muscles are activating maximally. We know that above about 85% of your maximum load, you get full motor unit recruitment. So you're basically recruiting every muscle fiber you have from the first rep, right? So that's why I said, you know, Think of an exercise where you can't do more than five, because if you can't if you can't do more than five, by definition, you know, guaranteed, you are recruiting one hundred percent of your muscle fibers. Now, if you can't feel your muscle fibers working as you struggle to push yourself up off the floor <laughs> from your one-handed push-up, you know that doesn't make sense. Like, think about the deltoid works unbelievably hard in a push-up, right? The anterior deltoid is incredibly active. Uh, it's probably the most active muscle, right? It works even harder than your pecs or your triceps in a lot of cases. Uh, it's definitely very, very strongly recruited. And so if you're doing a maximal push-up, you certainly have maximal recruitment of your anterior deltoid. But you probably can't feel it, right? You almost certainly can't feel it. Compare that to doing something like uh, maybe hug a tree on the reformer. Okay, you're kneeling, high kneel, you're or seated, cross-legged, you're facing the foot bar, you've got the straps in hand, you've got one spring on, maybe half a spring, and your you know, arms are wide, you're going to second position to ball- you know, in ballet, you know, and bring your fingertips together and then going out up wide with your arms and your elbows slightly bent. Okay. And imagine you do you know, 10 or 12 of those and your, your deltoids start to, you can really feel your deltoids, right? You can definitely feel them activating. And yet you're at one spring, right? You're, you can do 10, 12 reps. You can probably do 40 reps. Now it'll probably hurt, right? Probably burn, but you probably, you know, if you had a gun to your head or I offered you a million dollars, you probably could do 40 reps, right? So if you can do 40 reps, you're getting, it's a way lighter load than on the deltoid than a one-handed full plank push-up, right? Where you can't even do one rep or you can't do more than five reps. And yet in that hug a tree movement, you can probably almost certainly, in fact, feel the deltoid a lot more than what you can feel it in the push-up. So why is that? Why is that? Well, what you're feeling in the hug a tree when you do a lighter load, higher rep set, you flip into an energy system called anaerobic glycolysis to produce energy within that muscle cell. Okay, And anaerobic glycolysis produces or liberates energy within the muscle. And as a byproduct, as it liberates energy, it also produces like exhaust gases, just like your car produces exhaust gases when the motor's running. Okay, and the exhaust gases, the byproducts, the metabolic byproducts of anaerobic glycolysis within your muscle cell include free hydrogen ions and lactic acid, both of which are acidic. And so what you're feeling is very likely metabolite accumulation within that muscle cell. So you feel like you're, you're, you're perceiving chemical changes within the muscle cell, you know, you, the increase in uh, the density, the, you know, the number of free hydrogen ions within that muscle cell, which change an ion is just a, it's a, it's a charged particle, right? So hydrogen ions are negatively charged. Are they negative? Yeah, negatively, negatively charged. Uh, and so a free hydrogen ion 
as they increase the the electrical, you know, the 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 pH level. Sorry, not the electric. The pH level within the the acidity level within that cell changes. Right, it becomes more acidic. Okay, the chemical balance within that cell changes, and you you have you have the ability to detect those chemical changes, and you perceive them as burning. And so that is what you're very likely perceiving when you feel your muscles working in something like hug a tree, okay, or any exercise where you're feeling like a burn in the muscles, right? So again, if you think think about this, like imagine doing like a pistol squat, right? Now, pistol squat is where, if you don't know, is where you, you freestand on the floor and then you lift one leg straight in front of you and the leg's straight, Okay, and you reach your arms out in front of you. Maybe you hold a kettlebell if you need some balance or you put your heel up on a little wet lift so you don't fall over backwards, okay? Then you squat down until your butt literally touches your heel, okay? So all the way to the floor, okay? So one leg's right out in front of you, not touching the floor. The other leg is completely bent, you know, 180 degrees at the knee. And then you stand all the way up again. Now, most people can't do one. Some people can do five, right? Not many people can do more than five, right? Now, if you try and do a pistol squat, right? Now, let's just say that you can't do more than five pistol squats, okay? You try and do one pistol squat and you're like, oh, crap, this is really hard. Okay, you go down, you can't get up again if you're like most people. You probably don't feel much of anything in your quad when you do that. It's just like you cannot rise, right? It's not burning. It's not painful. You Like, it's, it's not cramping. It's, it's just like there's just no... You just don't have the horsepower to stand up. Right? So that is, again, that's a situation where you're doing a very heavy load relative to your capacity. So that's above 80%, 85% of your maximum if you can't do more than five reps. So you've got full motor unit recruitment. You're fully activating all of those muscle fibers in your thigh, right, in your quads, but you can't feel it. Whereas if you go do footwork on the reformer and you put on like two springs, right, and if you're like most people, you can probably do like 50, 80, <laughs> 100 reps at two springs, right? When you get to 20 or 30 reps, your legs will probably start burning, right? If you're like most people. Or 50 reps or 60 reps, whatever. Yeah, when you get to some point, your legs will start burning, right? So you're feeling, and yet if you can do 50 or 60 reps, obviously there's a much lower level of recruitment in that movement compared to an exercise like a, a pistol squat where you can't do five, Right? So if there's a much lower level of recruitment in the footwork, why can you feel it more, right? So it can't be the case that what you're feeling is muscle activation because if if you were feeling muscle activation, you would feel it more in a heavier loaded exercise, not less, right? So you're not perceiving muscle activation, what you're probably perceiving is the accumulation of metabolites, you know, free hydrogen ions predominantly within that muscle cell and then surrounding it. And that is basically turning the environment acidic and you have chemical sensors and uh, within, you know, your your muscles, within your, uh, you know, your interstitium, the, 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 the tissue surrounding the muscle. Uh, and they just pick up those free hydrogen ions and they go, hey, brain and spinal cord, it's getting kind of acidic down here. <laughs> And you perceive that as a burning sensation in the muscle. All right. Now, I want to move on to uh, the some exp- talk about a couple of experiment, lines of experimental evidence uh, that, sh- that sort of point, one's indirect and one's direct that point to uh, why, you know, suggest and one actually directly shows that we can't perceive muscle activation. So the first one's indirect, and that is to do with glute activation drills. Now, there is uh, quite a, you know, I don't want to get into the whole glute (laughs) activation conversation here, but there's quite a bit of literature on glute activation drills um, where the researchers will do something like they'll get someone to do a a global movement like a squat, and they'll measure their gluteus maximus activation. I put EMGs, you know, electromyographs, like electrical kind of signal detectors on the glute muscles. They'll get them to do the squat and they'll measure, you know, how much the glute activated. Then they'll do, you know, glute activation drills for, say, eight weeks. 
you know, whatever those glute activation drills are. And then they'll do the squat again and measure the glute activation. And so what these studies very consistently find, there's a fair few of these studies, and I'm going to link to uh, a a review, uh, a systematic review of these studies, which basically says consistently what we find is, you know, eight weeks later, let's say, after all those glute activation drills, people report that their glutes are activating better. So in other words, they perceive that their glutes are activating more. But when we put the electrodes on their glutes and they do that squat again at the end of eight weeks, what we find is their glute activation has not changed. So glute activation drills don't change your glute activation, but they do uh, frequently give people the perception that their glute activation has changed. So they've got this, the perception of glute activation changes without the actual glute activation changing, right? So the perception of activation is not related to whether it's activating or not because it was activating the same before, but they couldn't perceive it. And now they perceive it, but it's not activating anymore, right? So the perception is not related, is not an indicator of how much it's activating. It's just an indicator of how much you perceive it. And the final, uh, and I'll link to that in the show notes, and the final uh, bit of research I want to talk about in relation to perception is the one study I've been able to find where they directly measured people's subjective sensation. You know, they got people to rate it on a scale of 1 to 100, you know, how much the muscle was activating, how much they perceived the muscle activating. And then they measured the actual muscle activation right, in the same movement, at the same, you know, in the same moment. Uh, and this was a study on bodybuilders. On It was actually on elite bodybuilders. So these are very, very experienced uh, bodybuilders. And uh, dear listener, I don't know, you know, if you've got much knowledge of bodybuilding, but um, bodybuilders very commonly, I would say just about universally, uh, focus on what they call the mind-muscle connection. And what they mean by that is they focus their attention on squeezing the muscles that they're trying to target with an exercise and aiming to feel the contraction in that muscle. So if they're doing, say, a lat pull-down, they will focus their, their mind, their attention on the lats and try and feel a really good squeeze in the lats, right? Or if they're doing a bicep curl, I'll try and feel a really good squeeze in the biceps, etc. So, uh, and there's a lot of anecdotal, uh, you know, belief in the bodybuilding community that get a good mind-muscle connection facilitates greater hypertrophy, you know, greater muscle growth. Now, these are elite bodybuilders in this study. So they've been bodybuilding like 10 plus years. They're like very experienced you know, they focus on contracting their muscles and attending to the sensations of their muscles like every day, you know, for a decade, right? So these these people had a lot of experience of this. And in this research, the researchers put them in a leg extension machine and they put electromyographs, EMGs, on their rectus femoris, one of the quadriceps muscles. And they asked the bodybuilders to uh, report how much they they perceived the muscle activating. And then they measured the actual activation at different loads and different ranges. And what they found was there's basically no correlation between how much the bodybuilders reported the muscle activating and how much the muscle actually activated. So that's the one study that I've been able to find where they actually directly compared perception with activation in the same movement at the same time. And that just showed no correlation. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So let's just uh, do a little summary because that's quite a bit, right? We looked at the physiology. We talked about physiology of a muscle cell and that there's something called a Golgi tendon organ uh, housed like within the mus- within the collagen sheath that surrounds the muscle. It's kind of this hollow space with folded strands of collagen wrapped in nerve fibers. When the muscle ha- has tension applied to it, whether that tension comes from the muscle itself contracting or whether the tension, which is just a pulling force, is applied from externally, like when you stretch that muscle. Either way, there's tension on the muscle that that pulls on both ends of that Golgi tendon organ, stretches it out, which lengthens out those collagen fibers, which lengthens out the nerve fibers, which triggers a nerve impulse up to the spinal cord and brain, which gives the spinal cord and brain information that the muscle is experiencing tension. Now, the more 
tension you apply to muscle, or in fact, the more quickly you change the tension in the muscle, the more frequently that Golgi tendon organ fires. When I say fires, just means I just mean it sends a nerve impulse up that nerve, up that afferent nerve, up to the spinal cord and brain. Okay, and more frequent signals give the brain and spinal cord information that there's more going on, right? So more frequent signals tell the brain, tell your brain that that muscle is changing tension more quickly. So we have no known mechanism for sensing actual muscle activation, but we do have this mechanism for sensing tension. Tension often goes along with muscle activation, but not always. For example, when we stretch, there's no muscle activation, but there's tension. Uh, Golgi tendon organs are okay at sensing tension, but they're better at sensing changes in tension because they become desensitized when you maintain a constant tension. They actually fire less frequently over time, so you you get less and less information in your brain and spinal cord. Now, we uh, also know that uh, when we uh, teach somebody to activate their glutes for eight weeks, uh, that doesn't increase their glute activation in big exercises like squats, but it does increase their subjective experience of glute activation. So what that shows is that there is a lack of correlation between someone's subjective experience of glute activation and their actual glute activation. Uh, and finally, in the only study that I believe exists, at least the only one I've been able to uh, locate, that directly compares subjective perception of activation with actual activation in real time in the same movement at the same time, uh, we find no correlation. So it turns out, or it seems you know likely, I would say it turns out, it seems pretty likely <laughs> that humans just don't have, you know, we don't have a physiological mechanism for sensing activation directly. We can only sense tension. Um, in fact, we're better at sensing changes in tension than, uh, you know, than actual tension. So we're just not very good at sensing, you know, muscle activation, even though tension and activation often go together. Now, there's a third mechanism here, which I just want to talk about quite briefly, which is called uh, inhibition of conscious processing by self-generated movements. Not a very sexy title, um, but what it basically means is when you generate a movement yourself, right, as, a, you know, like if you move your arm, right, that's, that's a self-generated movement, whereas if the physical therapist picks up your arm and does the exact same movement, that's not a self-generated movement, that someone did it to you, right? Now, basically, when there's when you move your own body, you you your brain is able to predict what's going to happen. Like it knows that your arm's going to move a certain distance at a certain speed, right? The muscle's going to contract at a certain percentage and whatever. And that information is inhibited, you know, uh, expected information about you know muscle contraction is inhibited by your central nervous system because it's just not that important, right? In terms of your brain has limited processing power and you're processing lots of information, you know, sensory information, et cetera, from outside your body, you know, whatever it might be. And just the the internal information about, okay, I'm moving my arm, this muscle is contracting at this, you know, I've got this amount of tension on the muscle. That's less important than external information. And this is why you can't tickle yourself, Right, so you know, most people can't tickle that. You know, I can't tickle myself. <laughs> most people can't tickle themselves, and that's because of this effect of of inhibition of self generated movements, uh, in, in inhibition of processing of information about con, uh, self generated movements. So basically, when you expect the movement, like you can't tickle yourself unexpectedly, you like you know what's happening, right? And it's not that you know that you're tickling yourself; it's that you know what movement you're doing with that finger. Okay, and so it's it's expected. So you have less processing about it. However, when someone else lifts your arm, like if the physical therapist lifts your arm, for example, like even if they lift it the exact same you know way that you would have lifted it, it's unexpected. Even if you they told you how hey, I'm going to lift your arm, right? It's still unexpected in the sense that you can't you have no way of predicting the exact speed at which they will move your arm or exact amount of pressure they will apply. So it's always going to be unexpected because you, you're not privy to the information in their central nervous system, so you don't know how hard they're pulling or anything like that until they do it, 
right? So it's unexpected. So it's it's more important for your brain to prioritize that information because your brain, if they pull too hard or pull you to somewhere that's you know doesn't feel safe, your brain's got to be able to respond and contract those muscles defensively, right? Whereas you, you, when you do it yourself, you know you're not going to send that arm anywhere. It doesn't, you know, it, it's it's uh, like too far for its range or whatever. So we have this in, this inhibition of processing for self generated movements. That's why we can't tickle ourselves. I'm going to send. I'm going to share a link to that in the show notes. It's quite interesting. Um, so you know, basically, it's very we're set up, at, you know, physiologically and neurochemically not to be able to, you know, easily perceive muscle recruitment. Right? Well, there's no way of directly perceiving it. We can only perceive it indirectly through tension, and we're not even very good at perceiving tension. All right. So, you know, if you're feeling it, if you do feel something, you're probably feeling, you know, some kind of uh, metabolite accumulation or metabolic stress, okay? Free hydrogen ions in, in, in uh, increasing in uh, within that muscle region, or you might be feeling stretch, right? So if you're doing, say, front splits on the reformer, okay, you're you're probably, and you're feeling something in your hamstrings, you're probably feeling stretch, not activation, right? Because there's a high degree of change in tension on that muscle, but a lot of that change in tension is passive. So you're probably perceiving some combination of metabolite accumulation plus stress, uh, stretch, sorry, all right, so hopefully uh, that has uh, given you a lot to think about, and it certainly gave me a lot to think about. And uh, I think where I've landed on that is, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that we as humans can perceive muscles activating. I mean, no, we can't directly perceive it, but I don't even believe we're very good at estimating how much our muscles are activating based on uh, those Golgi tendon organ sensations, for all the reasons mentioned. Now, I want to just move on to why I don't think it matters if we feel it. And uh, that is because I don't think it matters how much your muscles activate, dear listener. Maybe that's heretical. I don't know. Maybe you're like, yeah, I don't care. Um, either way, here, here are my views. Muscle activation is not an important factor for any outcome that we would likely be concerned with in Pilates. Let me explain. If we're working with a client in Pilates, we might be interested in, you know, let's say broadly one of three, three, one of three things. In increasing strength. And when I say one of three things, I'm talking about like in relation to muscle activation, right? So there are other things we might be interested in, but it's like I don't think they're relevant to muscle activation. So I'm going to say increasing strength is one area where we might be interested in muscle activation. Uh, Injury prevention or recovery from injuries might be another area where we're interested in muscle activation. Uh, And uh, finally, um, improving like movement skill you know, like um, movement fluency, okay, might be another area, uh, another reason why we might be interested in muscle activation. So I'm going to go briefly through each of those things and show you why I don't think activation is at all important for any of those uh, and what is important instead. So let's just take them in order. So first one, strength, right? So if we're trying to increase somebody's strength, uh, strength science is pretty well understood at this point. Uh, you know, there are thousands of PhDs have been written on this topic. Um, and while we still have more to learn, uh, we certainly do understand a lot of this, you know, pretty well. Uh, and I can say with a, you know, with a pretty high degree of confidence that, you know, the scientific literature, you know, clearly shows that the primary stimulus for increases in strength is a high level of mechanical tension on individual muscle fibers. A high level of mechanical tension. Tension is just a pulling force on individual muscle fibers. Now, tension, as I already said at the start, is not the same thing as activation. Right? And in fact, I'm going to show you 
right now, how they're actually very, very different and sometimes opposite <laughs> to activation or reciprocal to activation. So think about this. Now, the, so just a very brief idea of the physiology. So what triggers a muscle fiber to become stronger, right? When you pull on it hard enough that you deform uh, some you know, part of the structure enough that it triggers a cascade of chemical changes within the muscle, which result in the muscle becoming stronger. So basically when you pull on it so much that it, it like the, it deforms, you know, it, it stretches. Okay. Now you can pull on it by contracting it, right? When you contract it, you cause tension, right? Tension is a pulling force. Okay. Muscles pull. So when you contract the muscle, you, if you contract it very hard against an external load that is heavy, right? You can cause a lot of tension and you can stimulate that strengthening response. Or if you passively stretch the muscle with a very heavy load, you can cause tension, right? Even without contracting the muscle, you can actually cause a muscle to get stronger. And I'll link to some of the research on this, uh, where you, uh, it's reasonably clear now, I think, that uh, we can cause muscles to grow without activating. So there's rat denervation studies where they actually cut the nerve to the muscle so the muscle can't activate. And then they stick them, this is like usually the soleus muscle, the calf muscle of the rat, and they'll, they'll put the, the, the foot in a boot which stretches the muscle extremely and leave it there for a week, right? And then they'll come back and the muscle is bigger, right? Even though there's no nerve supply to the muscle. So the muscle cannot contract, right? So we know that, you know, it's, it's well established that muscles can grow. It's called stretch-induced hypertrophy, right? So it's well, in, well established that muscles can grow uh, in non-human animals without um, activation. And there are a couple of studies in humans that have shown that as well. Obviously, you can't cut people's nerves and stick them in a boot for a week, <laughs> Um, wouldn't get past ethics. Uh, but we can, uh, there are a couple of studies where they've put someone in a boot like an hour a day at a nine out of 10 level of stretch, like stretch intensity, <laughs> and done that for a couple of weeks or a week. Um, you know, who volunteers for this study? There's no way <laughs> I would do that. Um, but they get people to do it somehow. And uh, they find that at the end of that, their Achilles, uh, you know, their, their gastrocnemius or whatever has grown. Okay. And I'll link to a, a study in the show notes on that. So high levels of mechanical tension are the primary stimulus for muscle strengthening. Now that tension can be with or without activation, right? Now more activation doesn't necessarily mean more tension, right? So you can have tension without activation, like in stretch, but you can also have more activation with less tension, right? And I'll explain how. So when you contract a muscle, you, you know, that muscle's made up of, let's again, let's just keep it simple and say that muscle's made up of 10,000 muscle fibers, right? All these parallel muscle fibers. So this is like a bundle of tiny little you know, hairs that are the full length of the muscle that can, each one of those hairs can shorten. Now, when you contract a muscle against a load that is non-maximal, so below maximum, so a light load, right? So let's say you're doing a bicep curl, Okay. And let's say that you can bicep curl like 10 kilos, right? Just say your maximum that you could curl once is 10 kilos, right? Well, just say you do a bicep curl with one kilo, right? You can do like 50 reps. Well, you're contracting your muscle with less than full activation, right? So when you curl that one kilo weight, you're not recruiting that muscle fully. And what it means to not recruit a muscle fully is you recruit only some of the muscle fibers, right? So if you can do fifty reps, if you're if you're active, if you're recruit, if you're working, sorry, if you're working at ten percent of your maximum, so you can do ten kilos, right? But you're only doing one kilo. If you're working at ten percent of your maximum, what's going to happen is you're going to recruit about ten percent of your muscle fibers. So ten percent of the muscle fibers in that bicep will be working, and ninety percent of them will be off. And those 10% of those, those 10% of muscle fibers that are working will have a high level of tension on them because they're only 10%, right? So the, the, the amount of muscle fibers is proportionate to the load. So each of those muscle fibers will have a high level of tension on it. And so they will get a strengthening stimulus, right? Those 10% of muscle fibers. But 
the other 90% won't get any stimulus because they're not active. Now, if you consciously contract your biceps muscle whilst curling that one kilo weight, you can consciously uh, activate 100% of those muscle fibers, right? But you still don't, you haven't changed the load. So now you've still got lo- a load equal to 10% of your maximum, right? And now you're activating 100% of your muscle fibers. So each of those muscle fibers has 10% of its maximum tension applied to it, right? Which is not a high level of mechanical tension. So it's not a sufficient stimulus to trigger a strengthening response. So when you, when you activate more muscle fibers with a lighter load, all you do is you spread the same light load amongst more fibers. Therefore, you have less load on each fiber. The stimulus for strengthening is more load on each fiber, right? So when you consciously contract a muscle with a lighter load, it actually reduces the strengthening stimulus of that exercise. So if you want to get stronger, what you need to do is add more load or do so many reps that you get right to the end and all those fibers are fatigued and now you are recruiting all of those fibers with full force because the first 10% of the fibers fatigued and tapped out, okay, then you recruited the second 10% and you kept going and then they got fatigued, then you recruited the third 10% and eventually you recruit all of them and all of them experience a high level of mechanical tension. But if you're doing it with a very light load, you have to do like 40 or 50 reps, right? Whereas if you do a heavy load, you'll get full recruitment from rep number one if you're doing 85% or more of your maximum, okay? And it is high levels of mechanical tension on individual muscle fibers that is the main stimulus for strengthening. So knowing how much a muscle is activating in a given exercise or indeed intentionally activating a muscle in a given exercise does not contribute to strengthening. In fact, it probably contributes to reducing the strengthening stimulus of an exercise. Right. So what about, so muscle activation, not an important concept for strengthening, right? Load is the important concept for strengthening. Uh, What about uh, injury rehab or injury prevention? Okay. Well, there's been a copious literature looking at um, muscle activation in relation to injury prevention. A lot of it's been in low back pain. We've got some in the shoulder. We've got some in the hip. I talked about glute activation exercises. Uh, But let's think about the low back. There are, I don't know, I'm going to say like 250 plus randomized controlled trials now on uh, looking at transversus abdominis activation, multifidus activation uh, in relation to low back pain. And, you know, we get two groups of people with low back pain. Um, You know, one group we give just normal, like, general exercise or like, you know, sit-ups and lunges and push-ups and that kind of thing. The other group gets you know, core activation, you know, um, targeted real-time ultrasound feedback to activate their transverse abdominis without activating their obliques or activate their multifidus without activating their, you know, without changing their pelvic tilt, et cetera, without activating their erectors. So, you know, changing the, the timing and activation level of the transverse abdominis relative to the obliques, the multifidus relative to the spinal erectors. And what we find is, you know, time and time and time and time and time and time again in these in these studies, there have been multiple systematic reviews and meta-analysis on this now. It's the, the, the science is very settled on this. Changes in transverse abdominis timing, changes in multifidus timing do not correlate with changes in back pain. It just doesn't correlate. Helping, uh, you know, when when somebody improves their transverse timing, abdominal timing, it doesn't predict whether their back pain is going to get better or not, right? So at the end of that study, where we compare those two groups, we find both groups improve, right, the same amount. And within the within each group, and there are some uh, secondary analyses of these studies. Uh, where we look at the people within the transverse abdominis group, you know, some of them got a lot better, some of them got a little bit better, some of them didn't get better at all, right? And we look at who got better, who got, you know, not better. And then we look at who improved the transverse abdominis timing and who didn't. And we find there's just no correlation between those two factors, right? So we know that muscle activation in relation to low back pain just isn't a factor, right? You can mess around with muscle activation all you want, and it's no better or worse than just doing some push-ups and sit-ups, 
right? So it's the load, it's the exercising, it's not the activation, again, in that situation. And there's probably other, you know, therapeutic factors in that um, therapeutic encounter that are more uh, psychosocial, that are more important as well. All right, and there's there's very similar literature in, in terms of kind of, um, you know, shoulder stabilization exercises, you know, glute activation, VMO activation in the knee. You know, we've got uh, quite a bit of literature now showing that muscle activation, as opposed to just loading the muscle, is not at all important. In fact, makes zero difference to injury prevention or rehabilitation. Strengthening makes a difference. Stretching makes a difference to rehab, but activation doesn't make a difference. Uh, thirdly, thinking about um, uh, quality of movement, so you know, movement fluency, movement skill. And the jury here is in as well. This is there's very clear from a copious literature on attentional focus and motor learning. And we've talked about this you know, previously on the podcast, that an external focus of attention, so focusing your attention on a, on a point outside your body that is related to the result of your movement clearly results in better quality movement uh, than focusing your attention on muscle activation. So if you're you know, trying to do teaser better, focusing on the straightness of your leggings as opposed to focusing on activating your rectus femoris will almost certainly improve the fluency and the precision of that movement. So there's a copious literature on that, and uh, I'll see if I can link to one of those systematic reviews on uh, external focus of attention and motor learning. Uh, and so activation just doesn't doesn't come into it uh, in any of those uh, you know in any of those situations. Uh, if you're rehabbing you know somebody's knee or you know back or shoulder, um, load matters, range of motion matters, um, position matters. Um, a lot of times, uh, forces on the joints matter, um, but activation doesn't matter. All right, dear listener, <laughs> where does that leave us? So uh, we don't have any any known mechanism, any known physiological mechanism for directly sensing muscle activation. We can sense tension through the Golgi tendon organs, which are just little empty spaces within the muscle tube, within the muscle cell, filled with folded up collagen with nerve fibers wrapped around it. When the when tension's applied to the muscle, they fire off a nerve signal and they're more sensitive to changes in tension than they are to absolute levels of tension. So we have a good ability to detect changes in tension in our muscle. Uh, but as we've talked through, attention and muscle activation are often not the same thing, although sometimes they are very similar. Um, and when we do perceive things going on in muscles, it's generally, uh, it's how much we perceive it is not related to how much tension is on the muscles. So when you do a maximal effort, you often don't feel it in your muscles or almost always don't feel it in your muscles. Whereas when you do a much lighter load with higher reps, you often do feel it in your muscles. And what we're probably feeling in that situation is not muscle activation, but it's a metabolic stress uh, and slash or stretch. Um, and, uh, you know, we also have this kind of uh, inhibition of sensory perception or sensory processing, probably is a better word, um, of self-generated movements because it's just not important information for our brain and spinal cord and we prioritize um, unexpected or non-self-generated movements or sensations over that. That's why we can't tickle ourselves. Uh, and so moreover, it actually doesn't matter and moreover, it actually doesn't matter uh, because muscle activation turns out to be not an important concept in uh, either strengthening, where load is important, and mechanical tension is the key stimulus, and where if you actually activate more muscle fibers at a lower load, all you do is spread the same load over more muscle fibers, actually therefore decreasing the load on each muscle fiber, and therefore decreasing the stimulus for strengthening. Uh, it's not important in rehab. We looked at muscle activation in the transversus or in the you know, shoulder stabilizers or the VMO in the knee or, you know, whatever it might be. And um, we find it's not superior. You know, the outcomes of that exercise are not superior to just doing general exercise and 
changes in the timing or recruitment of those muscles do not correlate with changes in pain. And finally, in terms of quality of movement, uh, muscle activation is not important because external focus of attention uh, has been shown you know, consistently and repeatedly to result in better learning and better quality movement than internal focus of attention. So, dear listener, I think uh, where that leaves us is uh, I don't think we can sense muscle tension, uh, muscle activation very active, very accurately. I think uh, sometimes we can perceive things happening in our muscles like tension, um, uh, chemical stress or stretch, and we can mistakenly attribute those things to being activation. And sometimes we just make shit up in our minds. <laughs> like those people in the glute activation studies after you know, spending eight weeks thinking about their glutes, they've, they thought they could perceive them more, but actually the actual, what was actually happening in the glutes, like just had not changed. So I don't think we need to worry about it though, because actually it turns out to be not important whether our muscles are activating or not, because if you're moving your arm, your bicep is activating. Uh, and load, range of motion, and position, and the forces on the joint turn out to be much more important for strengthening and rehab, and attentional focus outside the body turns out to be more important for movement quality. All right, I hope you found that interesting and uh, useful, and I'd love any feedback. Did it raise any questions for you that I didn't address? Uh, If so, send me a DM on Instagram. My Instagram uh, details are in the show notes. And uh, much love, and I'll see you in the next one. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.